I'm going to be reading 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 20 to 40 this evening. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one Paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two sayas of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. This is God's word for us tonight. So a while ago, a group of guys and I were planning for a bike outing, and one of the guys was going back and forth on whether he should take his old bike or buy a new bike. The old bike was a little iffy, and it needed some work, but, you know, it was paid for 
and a new bike would have been nicer and whatever, but, you know, then you had to go get it. And he kept going back and forth, old bike, new bike, old bike, new bike. And finally, he ran out of time, and he just took the old bike as it was without fixing anything up. And partway through the trip, and not really all that much through the trip, his chain broke. So we stopped, we repaired the bike chain, we kept going, the chain broke. We stopped, we repaired the bike chain, we went for a little while again, the chain broke. We stopped, you're getting a pattern here? We stopped, we repaired the chain, we biked as fast as we could in the hopes of getting a ways, and the chain broke. We stopped, we fixed it, we biked as slowly as we could to put as little pressure on the chain as we could, and the chain broke. We spent that whole bike ride just limping that stupid bike along because the guy hadn't made the right decision to begin with. It was just trouble upon trouble. Now, in our text for today, the Israelites have been living through several years of just limping along after King Ahab and his wife had brought Baal into Israel. They'd introduced this new god, Baal, who was supposed to bring all kinds of prosperity But the Lord had responded to that move by sending his prophet Elijah and saying, No, the Lord is God, not Baal. And the Lord had backed that up with a promise of drought, and that promise had been fulfilled for several years. Instead of bringing prosperity, Baal worship had brought devastation to the land. And now after years of drought, Elijah and Ahab and all the prophets of Baal and all of God's people gather here on Mount Carmel. And Elijah stands up before the gathering, and he asks the people, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. The literal translation of the question that Elijah asked there is, How long will you limp along between two choices? The people were going back and forth between two choices, and that meant they weren't getting anywhere. They were just limping along. So Elijah calls the people to make a choice. And did you notice how the people responded there at the beginning of our reading for tonight? The people respond with silence, deafening silence. Elijah asks them, which God are you going to follow? And they respond by saying nothing. Nothing at all. So imagine with me tonight if a high school guy really wanted to make a big impression and invite a girl who he really liked to a dance. So he put a note in her backpack, got some roses, sneaked into her locker, arranged for her friends to have her at a certain point in school at a certain time, somehow got the school's PA system to play her favorite sort of romantic song, and he went there at just the right time, found the girl, got down on his knee in front of her, and said, are you going to go to the dance with me? And you know what the answer is supposed to be in that situation, right? You're supposed to say yes. If you say anything but that, it's really awkward. But imagine if... The girl just sort of stood there and just stared at her feet. Didn't say yes, didn't say no, just kind of stared at her feet. And so the guy would have to kind of stay down there on his knees and think what he would do next, and all her friends would be back there wondering what's going on. And the silence just went on and on and on. That's not what's supposed to happen in that situation, right? 
silence isn't what's supposed to happen here on Mount Carmel either. Elijah's asking a question that's been asked several times before in the Bible, and God's people have always responded with, yes, we will serve the Lord. Probably the most famous, the most well-known of those passages is the end of Joshua, where Joshua stands up at the end of his ministry, and he tells the people to choose this day whom you will serve. And the people yell back, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua gets in their face and says, no, really, you aren't going to. No, really, you're going to go back and forth. No, really, you can't make this commitment. And the people come back to Joshua with, no, we will serve the Lord. There was no silence on that day. But now just a few books later, here in 1 Kings, Elijah asks pretty much the same question. Who will you follow? And there is no answer. Nothing. Just silence. And we don't know exactly what the people were thinking. Maybe they were conflicted in their minds between which God they really should serve. Maybe they were just confused about what was expected of them. Maybe they were convicted in their hearts that they were running after the wrong God and they really should make a change. We don't know. We don't know what was going on in their heads, but we know what came out of their mouths, and that was nothing. Nothing at all. It seems most likely the people were following Baal more than the Lord, but at best, they were going back and forth. They were limping along, hardly able, hardly willing to make a real choice. Now, we, of course, today, we never have awkward moments like that in our life, right? We never have those moments where we have to think about whether we're really serving the Lord or whether we're kind of serving the Lord and kind of doing other things. We never have that, right? Well, maybe not. In general, we don't worship Baal. We don't have idols that we go and serve. We don't go to other temples. And I'm glad we don't have to deal with that that day because it's tough to be in a situation where you have people actually worshiping other gods along with the Lord. But we all have those times when we could stand to ask the question, is our allegiance really to the Lord? Are we really functionally day-to-day worshiping the Lord? Or are we kind of worshiping the Lord and kind of worshiping something else? Anything, anything in our lives can become an idol. Even a really, really good thing, if we make it the ultimate thing in our lives, can become an idol. Tim Keller wrote a book a few years ago called Counterfeit Gods. And in that book, he suggested a number of questions that we can ask ourselves to help diagnose idols in our lives. And I'm going to just grab a couple ideas from his book. Now, first, think about your imagination. Your imagination. What do you daydream about? When you feel down, what do you think about to make yourself feel better? Do you spend time thinking about some new relationship or about somehow changing someone who's in your life so that they serve you or make you happier somehow? Do you dream about a bigger home or a better car or a new job? Where does your imagination take you? And second, what about your money? If someone sat down and they looked through your credit card statements or your checkbook, what would they think were your priorities? Would it be God's work? Would it be ministry? Would it be spending time with other people? Would it be toys? 
gadgets, your house, your car? What does your money say about where your heart is? And third, how about what gives you comfort and assurance? What gives you a sense that you are a worthwhile person? Is it your accomplishments? Is it your work? Is it how you do at school? Is it the stuff you own? Is it the family you belong to? Do you ever tell yourself, I would really feel good about myself if only, if only I had that thing or if only I could get that one more thing? And finally, what gets your emotions cranked up? What really gets you mad? What really gets you afraid? What really drives you to despair? What really brings on guilt feelings in your life? What gets you emotionally amped up? Our imagination, our money, our sense of worth, our emotions, where those things take us are often pretty good signs of what our real day-to-day priorities are. The things that we daydream about, the things we spend our money on, the things that drive us. Often those things act like our idols. All of those things can be signs of what we're worshiping and whether it's truly the Lord or whether it's something else. So do we really follow the Lord or are we too kind of limping along between the Lord and other gods? Now let me step down for a minute. And usually when we hear questions like this, we have, I think, a defensive and an offensive reaction. At least the times that I've heard a preacher say some things like this, I sit in the pew and I think, oh yeah, maybe, maybe that particular thing is an idol for me. Boy, I really have to work. Wait, wait, no, no. I've got it under control. I still give all the money that I need to do important things. I do this, I do that. This other thing, it's not really an idol. Really? No, no, it really isn't. I'm okay. On to the next point. I would guess a lot of us kind of have that defensive reaction. And maybe, maybe we're right. Maybe that thing that just popped into your head isn't an idol. Or maybe it is. But then I think I've often also had kind of an offensive reaction. Well, yeah, I probably spend too much time on that. But you know, the person two pews over, they really spend too much time at this thing. I'm, I'm, I'm not as bad as them. I'm okay. I'm not as bad as someone else I know. I don't think that either of those reactions are really very helpful. It is true that there are many things in our lives that aren't idols. It is always true that there is someone who is worse about something than we are. And none of us are perfect. And there may be times in our lives when we get to be Elijah, when we get to stand up and tell other people that they need to follow the Lord. But I think more often for all of us, there's times in our lives when we hear the Bible and we're sort of just standing there looking at our feet and keeping quiet and just hoping that the awkward silence goes away eventually. Maybe we're conflicted, maybe we're confused, maybe we're convicted. But I think all of us, if we're asked the question, who do you really follow? We'd have to stop and think about it a little bit if we're going to be honest about who we follow day to day. This text had better hit all of us hard because for all of us, there are times that we aren't really following the Lord. 
We've all got things that distract us. We've all got things that might be idols in our lives. And the thing is that all of those counterfeit gods leave us empty in the end. So back on Mount Carmel, Elijah proposes a trial by fire and he lets the prophets of Baal go first. And they get together the altar and the wood and everything they need for the sacrifice. And then they call on their God. And they call and they call. They call all morning. Oh, Baal, answer us. But nothing happens. They shout and they dance around the altar. And by the way, that word for dancing around the altar is actually the word limping. That same word that was used earlier when Elijah asked, how long are you going to limp along between two opinions? These prophets of Baal are shambling and stumbling around the altar, trying to get something going with this false god. And then later in the day, Elijah starts to mock him. Maybe he's deep in thought, or he's busy, or he's on a trip. Yell louder. Maybe your god's sleeping, and you have to wake him up. Yell louder. And I think when we read that, we we sort of think Elijah's mocking them. But the prophets of Baal would really have been worried about those things. The prophets of Baal thought Baal was kind of like a great big human being up in the sky, so he might go on trips, or he might get distracted, or he might be busy, or he might be asleep. So sometimes they had to go crazy to get through. So they started to scream and yell, and then they even started to cut themselves and let the blood flow. And to us, that just sounds crazy But this probably was what the prophets of Baal did every year. Every year when they thought the dry season would be over, they probably had this ritual where they'd go out to the altars and they'd run around and they'd scream and they'd yell and they'd cut themselves and let their blood flow. And the theory behind that seems to be if they sort of did this sacrificial thing and let their blood flow out on the ground, Baal would open up the sky and let the water flow onto the ground and the rain would come, and the crops would grow, and life could continue. But in this case, even that routine that they would have thought usually worked did nothing. Over and over again, these verses pound home quietly, but they pound home the point, Baal does nothing. Verse 26 says there was no response. No one answered. And verse 29 again says there was no response. No one answered. No one paid any attention. The prophets of Baal did all this crazy stuff to get their God to pay attention, and he still did nothing. Baal does nothing for them. Nothing at all. And ultimately, that's what all of our current idols can do for us too. Our daydreams fade away. Our new purchases make us happy for a day or two, and then they're just old hat again. So many of the things that give us purpose or worth can be gone in a day. Our idols betray us. They let us down. They fade away. I knew a lot of people a few years ago who really had this mindset that they were going to get a great job and have a great life. So when they hit college, they picked majors based not on what they were interested in or what they liked. But if I get this career, if I get this degree done, then I can get this job, and I can get this job, and I'll be making a lot of money a decade down the road. And some of those people, they got out, they got all the degrees, they got the job they wanted, they got to the mountaintop, and they found that it was all empty. They hated their jobs. The money meant nothing. 
And so some of them kept pushing and just, ah, this is terrible, but what else am I going to do? And some of them just walked away from it all, went and found a job being a waitress or something, because at least then they had more spare time to do something that mattered. In 2009, Nathan Hatch, who's a Christian historian and a president of Wake Forest University, looked back over the previous few years, and he remarked on what a high proportion of his students had chosen seemingly based on what the future income would be, just chosen majors based on, hey, in business, in finance, in medicine, I'll have a good income, I'll have the life I want. And that was 2009. In 2008, there was the crash, or whatever you want to call it. And a lot of those students got out of school and found there was nothing. They'd been serving this God, they'd had this pursuit in mind, they'd run and they'd run, and they ended up with nothing. The things of this world do not satisfy and they do not save. And even the best things, even if we have great marriages and wonderful vacations and exciting, profitable careers, in the end, none of those things satisfy. All the other gods that we pursue in our lives fall silent in the end and they leave us with nothing. Nothing. Just emptiness and silence. Now on Mount Carmel, Elijah, the prophet of the Lord, steps into the silence after the prophets of Baal have exhausted themselves. And he steps forward and he prays to the Lord. No dancing around, no unpleasant rituals, just prayer to the Lord and faith in the Lord and trust in the power of the Lord. And you notice there, Elijah doesn't even really tell the Lord what to do. He doesn't say, send fire or send rain or do this particular thing. What he asks most of all is that the Lord let it be known that he is God so that the people will come back to him. And we read the story. You know how it goes. The Lord responds with power. The fire of the Lord descends from heaven and it burns up the altar and everything around it. Earlier, the people had stood in silence when asked to choose their God. The priests of Baal had yelled and screamed until they fell silent. And then in the awkward silence, the Lord sends a very clear message that he is God. And then the people respond. In verse 39, they finally answer the question that Elijah asked at the beginning of our reading for today. And they cry out, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And then they seize the prophets of Baal and they slaughter all of them. They might not get going real fast, but when they get going, they really get going in the Old Testament. That last bit of the text might be kind of a shocker for us. Some commentators think that Elijah and the people got kind of carried away and went a little farther than they needed to. But I think the text is trying to give us an important message there. Those prophets of Baal are Baal's representative. These are the people who had urged that the Lord's prophets be slaughtered. They'd called the Lord's people to be unfaithful to him. They had brought God's people into terrible, deep, ongoing sin. And when people choose to serve other gods, they've left the way of the Lord. And outside of the way of the Lord, one way or another, idols lead to destruction. There is no option here to serve two masters. Either we serve the Lord or we don't. 
There is no two ways about this. There's no middle ground. Either we serve the Lord or we don't. And this is a problem. And this is a problem for us because we don't serve the Lord all the time. The fate of Baal's prophets in this text is the fate that all of us deserve. Even us. When the judgment of the Lord comes down, things don't look good for us people who run after other gods. Now, if all we had in the Bible was this story, we could be tempted to tell ourselves that the message of this text is just try harder. Try harder. When you face a choice, choose the Lord every time. Try harder, choose better, do better, be better. And I think that is, in a way, the message of this text. We are all called to make a true commitment to the Lord. We're called to burn our other idols. We're called to repent, to turn away from other gods. Every day we're called to fight and fight and fight against all the temptations that beset us. In this world, we are swamped with ways to love and worship other gods. Every day, every hour, we face that temptation. We are in the midst of a cosmic war. So we need to repent of following our idols, and we need to bend all of our willpower to not following them anymore. But we can't do that on our own. On our own, we keep sneaking other gods in the back door. We kick one out, another one comes in. Even when we do our best, we are just limping along. So the real message of this text is not, try harder, you foolish people. The real message of this text is the Lord. He is God. The Lord. He is God. It is only when we look to the Lord hour after hour, day after day, that we find a way out of all of our stumbling around. On a different mountain, many centuries after Elijah, the Lord himself became a sacrifice. Jesus himself showed his own power in taking on himself the punishment that we deserved. We deserved to be slaughtered, to suffer forever, And instead, Jesus took on our suffering. Jesus faithfully paid for our unfaithfulness. We need to recognize our false gods for what they are. We need to have a clear answer to that question of which God we will follow. But most of all, we need to look to the Lord. The Lord calls us to serve Him and Him alone. But the Lord also works in our hearts so that we can really hear and really respond to that call. As long as we're following other gods, we're going to end up just limping along. As long as we're depending just on our own willpower, the best we can do is limp along. But the Lord, the Lord makes our paths straight. The Lord works a bit by bit to help us get rid of the other idols in our lives. He works to heal our brokenness, to lead us to truly confess that He is the Lord God. The Lord reigns supreme. The Lord is God. Let's choose this day to follow Him.